All right. I bet you can't guess what book I'm going to ask you to open to. <laughs> Acts. Acts chapter 1. As we continue in our study of Acts chapter 1, we will finish uh, Acts chapter 1 this morning. So uh, we're in Acts chapter 1. We'll be starting at verse 21 this morning and going down to verse 26. Just a reminder, as always, there's a sermon note sheet in your bulletin. We hope you'll use that. Uh, there are Bibles available to you if you need one on the table in the back of the auditorium. As uh, you, you need one for the morning, or if you need one, just take one along. Those of you who are using new Ryrie Study Bibles, congratulations. <laughs> uh, Acts chapter 1 is where we're at, starting at verse 21. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord God, thank you so much for the opportunity to worship you, to tell you how much we love you, how much we desire to align our lives with the truths of your word, how much we desire to have your will in our lives. Thank you for the instruction that you give us. Thank you for the clear direction that you give us in your word. Thank you for the example of the early disciples the apostles, as they sought out your word and sought out your direction, sought out your will for their lives and for the direction of your church. Thank you that we have your word available to us to know what your mind is, to know what your desires are, to know what your will is. Thank you for that. And Lord, as always, thank you for providing your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who went to the cross of Calvary, where he paid the penalty of our sin. He, the innocent one, the sinless one, so that we might, by simply putting our trust in him, have the hope of eternal life, pass from death to life and become a part of your family. There's even one here this morning who needs to make that decision. We pray, Father, that your spirit would move them toward the most important decision of their lives. Now, Father, thank you. Guide us in this study in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, when we left the apostles last week, in Acts chapter 1, they were praying together. They were studying the Scripture. Remember that they are people of prayer. They are people of the book, people of the Bible. And when we left them last week, they had prayed. They were studying God's Word. And they came to the conclusion that Judas, who had betrayed the Lord and died as a result of his betrayal, should be replaced. Should be replaced. And that's where we come to our study this morning. They read the Word of God. 
They studied the Word of God, and they did it with an eye to obedience. It's something that you and I can take a lesson from. When we read the Word of God, when we study the Word of God, when we hear the Word of God taught, we need to do it with an eye to being obedient to the Word of God. As they did. Well, several questions arise out of this passage. Interesting how many people question, did they make a right decision? Should they have replaced Judas? Did they get ahead of God? Did they get ahead of themselves? So we have several questions that we want to try to answer this morning, and then in the remaining moments we have together, we'll talk about some principles for determining the will of God in our lives today. But some of the questions we're going to seek to answer is, were they right to replace Judas? Were they right? Secondly, we're going to try to answer the question, should they have used the lot as the means of making a decision? Was it somehow gambling? Was that a proper way to make their decision? Another question we're going to try to answer as we go through these verses this morning is, is was Matthias the right choice? Should they have waited for Paul? Paul being, in some people's thinking, Paul being God's choice. So we're going to try to answer those this morning from the closing verses of Acts chapter 1. We read in verse 21, Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up for us. For one of these must become a witness with us of His resurrection. Remember, in our passage last week, they had been studying the Scripture and they, the Holy Spirit applied the Scripture to their situation. He was one of our number, Peter said, shared in this ministry. Later in Psalm 69 and verse 25, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. In Psalm 109, verse 8, may another take his place of leadership. As they studied the Scripture, as they prayed together, as they listened for God's direction, they came to the conclusion that according to the Word of God, Judas must be replaced. So they lay out in the verses we just read some of the requirements, some of the qualifications for the person who would replace Judas. And again, they remind us that the reason for these qualifications, the reason for this ministry is they must become a witness with us of Jesus' resurrection. I hope that you remember the Christian's first priority is what? Witness. Your first priority, my first priority is to witness to this one who conquered, paid for our sin, and conquered death. That's our first priority. The church's one mission, 
That's, uh, that's our first priority as individuals. Our, the church, as a corporate body, the church's one mission is the same, to witness. That's why we're here, folks. There are a lot of accoutrements that have been added to what the church is supposed to be and what the church is supposed to do. And there are all kinds of ways people determine what, whether a church is doing that or not. And the one that they don't think about is to be a witness. That's your first priority. That's the church's first mission is to be a witness. And so that, that's the reason for these characteristics. That's the reason for these qualifications for the one who replaced Judas. So verse 23 tells us they proposed two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Verse 21, they said it's necessary. We ran across that. Greek word last week, the, the Greek word that's translated as necessary, it's the word day, D-E-I, and you'll remember, I hope from last week, that it means a divine necessity. It was a necessity, a divine necessity. One writer said this, everything that happens does so as a necessary fulfillment of Scripture and the purposes of God, even tragic events such as the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. It was a divine necessity and the apostles understood that. We see several things here from the apostles in verse 21. We see, number one, their faith in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. We see their faith in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. How, you say to me, do we see that? Well, I hope to show you that in just a moment. We see their faith in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see their faith in the literal fulfillment of the kingdom. We see their faith in the literal fulfillment of the kingdom. Now, why do we say that? What is it that prompted them? What is it from the Scripture that prompted them to understand that it was necessity of God that they replaced Judas. Well, it was Jesus' teaching to them. Remember, we have 40 days of teaching from the time of Jesus' resurrection until His ascension. That's what Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1. For 40 days He taught them, but what about the three years prior to that when Jesus taught them, and He taught them things like this. Turn with me for a moment to the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28. Chapter 19 and verse 28. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, that's a reference to the millennium, you who have followed Me, He's speaking here to the twelve, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for My sake 
will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Jesus had taught them repeatedly that they would sit on 12 thrones when he returns. They would sit on 12 thrones to reign with him when he sets up the millennial kingdom. They had faith in his return. They had faith in the literal fulfillment of the kingdom. And so they realize that there are only 11 of them. If there are 12 thrones and 11 of them, what happens to the 12th throne? 12 was an important number, by the way, in Israel. It was important in Jewish symbolism. For example, there are how many tribes in Israel? 12. 12 is an important number. So they understood from Jesus' teaching. They understood that there were 12 thrones, but there were 11 of them. And those 12 thrones would be returned when, would be filled when he returned to reign on earth. They thought it was imminent. And it still is today. His return is still imminent. imminent. The second thing, Revelation 21.14 tells us that there are 12 foundations to the new Jerusalem and on those 12 foundations are the names of what people? The 12 apostles. The 12 apostles. Acts chapter 12 and verse 2. The third reason they saw it as a necessity to replace Judas is that, interestingly enough, Judas was replaced because of his defection, not just because he died. Now, hang with me on this point. Jesus was, Judas, excuse me, was replaced because of his defection, not just because of his death. How do we know that? Acts chapter 12 and verse 2, James was not replaced. He was one of the twelve. He was the first apostle to be martyred, but they didn't seek to replace him. They didn't seek to replace him. So for these reasons, they saw it as necessary to replace Judas. Now notice the qualifications are found here. Verses 21 and 22. Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up for us, for one of these must become a witness with us of His resurrection. The qualifications are two. Number one, it must be somebody who was a companion of Jesus the whole time from John's baptism until Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Had to be somebody who was a companion of Jesus the whole time from John's baptism to the ascension, who had to be witness to Jesus' public ministry. Second qualification was he had to be a witness of Jesus' resurrection. He had to be a witness of Jesus' resurrection. Now, we're going to get into this in just a moment, but let me ask you this. 
if those are the qualifications, somebody who was with the disciples, somebody who was with Jesus from his ministry, from John's baptism, through the ascension, could that be said of Paul? Don't be afraid. No, it can't be said of Paul, right? It cannot be said of Paul. Hang on to that thought. Hang on to that thought. Those are the qualifications. We see in verse 22, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Again, we see the importance of the resurrection. The importance of those who had seen Jesus alive from the dead. Well, one writer said this. The one chosen should be a personal witness who can speak from his own experience of the ministry, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus. One can easily see that this qualification will soon put an end to those who bear such personal testimony. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? He means that the the pool of those who would qualify as apostles will get shorter and shorter and narrower and narrower as time goes by. Why? Because they would die off. They would die off. So these are important qualifications and they are important for us to understand whether this was a right choice or not. Whether they made the right decision to make that choice of a twelfth to replace Judas. Another writer said, and I thought this was an important point, why such stringent requirements? Well, they underscore what the New Testament is forever telling us, that our faith is not based upon myths or legends, it is based on facts and events which men have seen, felt, heard, and been involved in. Your faith, my faith, is not based on legends. It's not based on some kind of holy history. It is based on events that people witnessed and witnessed to us. It's based on events that people witnessed and then testified to us. It's not based upon myths. It's not based upon legends. As the writer said, this is not a holy history, as certain theologians like to call it, a kind of pseudo-history which takes place only in the realm of ideas. No, these things actually happened. Our faith rests upon the fact that they really occurred. For this reason, the apostles, the apostle rather chosen, must be able to give witness that these things were actually true. So we see the qualifications. We see the importance of the resurrection. And then we see that they come up with two choices. Joseph, who is also called Barsabbas, which means son of the Sabbath. Possibly he was born on the Sabbath. Possibly he was born on the Sabbath, and so he was called Barsabbas. He's also, his, his name in Latin is Justice. Well, the first choice was Joseph. The second choice was Matthias. Tradition tells us that he he ministered in and was martyred in Ethiopia. So that's Matthias and Joseph are the two choices. Both equally qualified. 
both equally qualified. So they proposed these two men. Notice in verse 24 what they did. They what? Somebody. <laughs> they prayed. They prayed. The first thing they did was pray. Here they are again. We see that they are people of the book, but they're also people of prayer. They prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. By the way, if you want a verse, uh, some verses for that sometime on your own, we don't have time this morning to look it up, but look up Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6. Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6. God knows everyone's hearts. And so they prayed. They prayed because God knows everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. They prayed. They acknowledged God. They acknowledged His omniscience. They acknowledged that God had made a choice and they were simply asking God to reveal it to them. God had made a choice and they were simply asking God to reveal it to them. Well, the second thing they did is somebody mentioned just a moment ago. Then they, verse 26, then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. So now the question comes up. The first question was, should they even have done that? Should they even have replaced Judas? Now the question comes up. Should they have used the lot? Was it proper for them to use the lot? Well, first of all, we have to understand, I like the way one of the commentators said it, we must remember that this wasn't done in a casino atmosphere. We're not talking about gambling here. This is a common means for the Jews to make a decision. A common means for the Israelites to choose between two choices. Probably what would happen is that the names of these two men would be written on a rock, one on one rock, one on another rock. It would be placed in a container and then the rocks would be cast out and the first one to drop to the ground would be the answer from God. As one writer said to the Jews, the lot did not suggest gambling but the Old Testament method of learning the will of God. This was very commonly done in the Old Testament. The casting of lots. The first stone to fall out, the name on that stone would be the one chosen by God. Well, how do we know? How do we know that's the one chosen by God? Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. That was the Hebrew understanding. Now, interestingly enough, this is the last time in the Bible that we see the casting of lots. This is the last time in the Bible that we see the casting of lots used as a means to make a decision. Why would that be? Well, we can conjecture that the reason for that is the very next thing that happens in the early church in Acts chapter 2 is what? The coming of the Holy Spirit. 
the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. You see, you and I have something that the apostles did not. They had the Word of God. We have the Word of God. They had prayer. We have prayer. But we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us and can guide us into proper decision-making. We don't cast lots today. And this passage is not meant to say that that's a way that you and I should make decisions today. It's the last time in the Scripture that it was used as a means of determining the will of God. With the coming of the Holy Spirit, He would guide us through the Word of God to make good decisions. As one writer pointed out, there was no moral question involved here. They were deciding between two men of equal qualifications. And this is the procedure laid out in the Old Testament. And we see in places like Proverbs 16, 33. So Matthias is chosen. Well, now the, the question comes up, was Matthias the right choice? Uh, do you see? First of all, was it right for them to choose a replacement? Secondly, did they use the right means to choose? And then thirdly, well, if it was right for them to replace Judas, and it was okay to use the lot, then what does it say for Matthias? Was he the right choice? Was he the right choice? Well, they cast lots. The lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Now, let me give you the arguments for and against, and let me say this. If you come to a different conclusion, that's fine. It's okay for you to come to a different conclusion about this, whether they were right to replace him, whether they should have waited for Paul. I'm just going to lay out the evidence. You can decide. The arguments against the choice of Matthias is this. Number one, it was a poor method of choosing. It was a poor method of choosing. Those who would say that Matthias was the wrong choice say it's a poor method of choosing. Secondly, the second argument against Matthias is that Paul should have been the twelfth apostle. There are those who say Paul should have been the twelfth apostle. But... Even Paul never linked himself with the twelve. In fact, what Paul did was set himself apart from the twelve. He was proud of his separation from the twelve. Even he did not that make that connection. Even he didn't link himself with the twelve. If you want evidence for that, look at Galatians 1, 15-24, 1 Corinthians 15-8. Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 27. Paul was a genuine apostle, but he was not one of the twelve. Paul was a genuine apostle, but he was not one of the twelve. And he never linked himself with the twelve. The third argument against Matthias is Matthias is never mentioned again in the book of Acts but the answer to that is simple. Neither are any of the others except Peter, James, and John mentioned again in Acts. That's not a good argument. 
Well, how about the arguments for Matthias? The arguments for Matthias. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28 that we looked at just a few moments ago talking about the 12 apostles sitting on the 12 thrones of Israel in the millennial kingdom is Jewish in orientation. Paul was a minister to what people? The Gentiles. The Gentiles. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Whereas Matthew 19 is Jewish in orientation. The second argument for Matthias and against Paul is Luke, who was Paul's friend and companion, recognized the twelve as an official group. That is, Luke never questioned it. Luke never questioned it. Apparently nobody among the 120 who were present that day in Acts chapter 1 ever questioned it. Paul recognized the twelve as an official group in Acts 2.14 and 6.2. The third argument for Matthias is there's no sense of rebuke in the choice of Matthias. And then finally, number four, Paul could not, as one writer said, have filled up the ranks because he could never meet the divine qualifications laid down in verses 21 and 22. For these reasons, I believe that Matthias is the right choice. I believe that they were right to replace him. I believe that there was nothing wrong with the choice with choosing by lot. And I believe that Paul was not God's choice. I believe that Matthias was. Now, if you come to a different conclusion, that's okay. That's okay. I know there are many who believe that the 12th should have been Paul. Well, one writer said in recent years there has been an increasing custom of censuring the early Christians for their action in electing an apostle to fill the place made vacant by Judas. It seems to require, however, considerable temerity to criticize men who for 40 days have been receiving instruction from the risen Christ and who since his ascension have been passing the hours in united prayer. I think those are good statements and good reasons to see that this was a right choice on the part of the apostles. It was a right decision to choose. Matthias was the right choice. There was nothing wrong with using the lot as a way to do it. Well, let's talk about, just for a few minutes as the close last 10 minutes or so, how are you and I to discern the will of God? How are you and I to determine the will of God? What steps might we take? What should we understand if we want to determine the will of God? Uh, let me share, first of all, three resources that would be, I think, helpful to anybody who was struggling with this. By the way, I know that many of you could, could uh, uh, talk about some of your favorite uh, authors and books when it comes to decision-making and the will of God. There are many out there. I just want to mention three. One is called The Man in the Mirror by Patrick Morley. The Man in the Mirror by Patrick Morley. 
that has a great section on the will of God, knowing the will of God. The second book I'd like to mention is almost not a book. <laughs> it's almost just a booklet. It's just a little small volume, and it's by John MacArthur, and the newest title that I know about is called Found God's Will. Found God's Will. The original title I liked a lot better. The original title was God's Will is Not Lost. I thought that was a good title. I don't know why they changed it, but they changed it to Found God's Will. That's a good little uh, booklet to help. The other is, the third is A Compact Guide to the Christian Life. This is the book that we've given out literally hundreds, maybe thousands over the years, uh, over our 27 years, um, because we're so committed to it. It's such a great uh, uh, compendium of the Christian life, both theologically and practically. And they have a great section on the will of God and guidance from God in the Compact Guide to the Christian Life. Let me talk about six biblical observations concerning God's will. Six biblical observations concerning God's will. Number one, the first one. To Paul, God's will was not something he sought out, but something that he assumed was active in his life. To Paul, God's will was not something he sought out, but something that he assumed was active in his life. You don't see Paul fretting a lot over the will of God. You don't see Paul wringing his hands saying, I don't know if I should go right or left. You see him trying to go right, and God prevents him from going right, so he says, apparently I'm supposed to go left. Because he assumed the will of God was working in his life. Let me give you some passages. Acts 18.21, Romans 1.10. Romans 15:32, 1 Corinthians 1, 1. That's just, those are just representative. There are many other verses. To Paul, God's will was not something he sought out, but something that he assumed was active in his life. The second principle is this. And this, to me, may be the most important one. Before God's will involves an action, it involves an attitude. That's 2 Corinthians 8.5. Before God's will involves an action, it involves an attitude. 2 Corinthians 8.5, uh, in that passage in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking about the gift for the believers at Jerusalem. They were in dire straits. He was taking a collection to be given to them, to be taken to them, and he begins by giving the example to the Corinthians, giving the, them the example of the Macedonians. The Macedonians were poor as church mice, as we say sometimes. They were as poor as could be. And yet, out of their extreme poverty, it welled up in rich generosity so that they became an example to the other churches of how to give, what attitude to give. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8.5, they gave themselves first to the Lord, then to us in keeping with God's will. See, they didn't begin by reaching in their pocket and saying, how much do I have? 
began by reaching in their hearts and said, how much does God want me to give? Before God's will involves an action in your life or in my life, it involves an attitude. God's will is not subject to debate, and yet that's how you and I approach it sometimes. We think, okay, well, God, please show me your will, and then when he does show us his will, we say, I don't like that one. Do you have another will? We take it as a matter of debate. God's will is not subject to debate. Before you ask, should I go right or should I go left? You have to deal with your heart. Before we ask, should we take this job or that job, we have to deal with our heart before God. Before we ask, should I marry this person or that person, we have to deal with our hearts before God. Before God's will involves an action, it involves an attitude. The third observation is if we are to know the will of God, we must be walking in the Spirit. We must be under the control of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 15 and following. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Paul is saying there that if we are to know the Word of God, we're going to have to be yielded to the control of the Spirit in our lives. If we are to know the will of God, we're going to have to be yielded to the control of the Spirit in our lives. The fourth biblical observation concerning the will of God. Renewing our minds is foundational to God's will. Renewing our minds is foundational to God's will. The book of Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 points that out where we read this. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Renewing our minds is foundational to knowing the will of God. Hebrews chapter 5 And starting at verse 11, we read this. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about baptism, the laying on of hands, 
the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment and God permitting we will do, do so. Paul, or the writer there, we don't know if it's Paul, the writer there is saying, move on to maturity. Renew our minds in the Word of God. Renewing our minds is foundational to knowing God's will. Number five, the fifth biblical observation. Prayer is essential to knowing the will of God. Prayer is essential to knowing the will of God. Even as the early church, even as the disciples, even as the apostles prayed before they made their decision, they studied the Bible before they made their decision, even so, prayer is essential to knowing the will of God. We should be praying for spiritual wisdom and understanding for ourselves and for other believers. That's Colossians 1.9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. And finally, number six, the sixth biblical observation. We need to remember that the flesh and Satan will seek to deter us from the will of God. That's 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. The sinful nature, Satan, will do everything to, road, to set up roadblocks so that we will not follow the will of God. To Paul, God's will was something not something to be sought out, but something he assumed was active in his life. Before God's will involves an action, it involves an attitude. If we are to fulfill God's word, we have to be under the control of the Spirit. Renewing our minds is foundational to knowing God's will. Prayer is essential to knowing the will of God. And always remember, the flesh and Satan seek to deter us from the will of God. Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for this reminder and example from the early church. Thank you, Lord, that they prayed. They gave us that example. Thank you that they searched your word. They gave us that example before they made a decision. Thank you that we now have the Spirit indwelling us who can take that prayer and take your word and guide us into proper decisions. Thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.